Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck? A show that explores the power of human connection and the profound resilience of the human spirit through compassionate conversations that help you better understand yourself so you can live with the sense of peace, purpose, and joy that you deserve. Each episode offers a safe space for guests to share intimate details of their personal journey and lessons learned along the way as we all seek to answer life's most important question. Who the fuck am I? Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce and you're listening to Who the Fuck. On today's episode, I'm sharing the mic with Lisa Sugarman. And Lisa is a proud member and ally of the LGBTQ plus community, a parenting author, having penned multiple books, including How to Raise Perfectly Imperfect Kids and Be Okay With It, Untying Parent Anxiety, and Life, It Is What It Is. She's also a nationally syndicated columnist, a podcast host, and a survivor of suicide loss, as well as a passionate advocate for mental health awareness and suicide prevention, which led her to become a crisis counselor with The Trevor Project. So, Lisa, I am so excited to have you on the show. I loved our first conversation. I'm glad that we get to have another one, and I hope there are many more to come. I cannot echo that enough. I had the biggest smile on my face after you and I got off, and I think we both could have just pretty much run with it for hours and hours. We were just in such a nice little groove and yeah. I've been so excited to get back and kind of pick up where we left off. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say I have sitting on my bookshelf over there, the book that you recommended, Grief is Love. I just have oh. not had a chance to actually pick it up and do anything with it. And I want to be very intentional about that, but I did order it when we talked about it, as I said. I am I so happy. Marissa <laughs> Renee Lee, what a beautiful, beautiful book. I can't wait to hear what you think. Yeah, absolutely. I will be sure to let you know. So I'm really glad that we're having this conversation today. You have, I think, quite a unique journey that you've been sharing around your life, especially as an adult. And I think so much of the conversation that we have as we're really coming into who we are is looking back a lot at who we were when we were younger and kind of seeing these different versions of ourselves over the years and the way that circumstance sort of dictates how we end up, where we end up and how we end up, Mm. who we end up as, you know, the two things that we spoke about originally that really stand out in your story are, excuse me, the fact that your father had died of suicide when you were 10, but Mm -hmm. you didn't find that out until you were in your forties. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. I was 45. You also in the last few years when your daughter came out as bisexual, uh, helped you realize or understand or accept the fact that you are in fact pansexual. So Mm -hmm. you've had, I think it sounds like really in the last decade or so, some really (laughs) transformative life moments that have impacted who you are and how you show up in the world. So I kind of just wanted to start a little bit with, I suppose, Learning about the loss of your father and understanding that his death was suicide as opposed to a heart attack, which I believe is what you were originally told. Yeah, that was the narrative that I was given when I was 10 because my mother you know, was trying to navigate being a 40-year-old widow with a 10-year-old child. And she knew that his loss would shatter me and to layer another huge issue, peace, whatever you want to call it, on top of that, by telling me that it was a suicide was just something she felt was just too much for me. So she 
shielded me from that. And I'm incredibly grateful to her for that. Yeah. You know, I was curious. The reason I brought that up first is because I was really wondering if re-grieving the loss of your father kind of started you on the journey of redefining your sense of self or how it impacted your sense of self. It did. And I, I love how you just you just said that. It was um, just such a beautiful way to put it. I mean, I keep tracking back to the word transformative in terms of my own life, especially recently, because that's, I guess, the most appropriate word for it. And I think that, I mean, as, as far as my sexuality goes, that's always been with me since I was much younger. I was, you know, in, in my teens when I became aware of that, but it was really this other piece of my life that's shifted so dramatically. I mean, you said it in the intro that I've been a parenting author and writer and speaker for years and years, for probably 15 years now, and I've completely changed lanes, I think, due mostly to that revelation about my dad and, and his death. And I mean, I've unfortunately been kind of accompanied by grief and loss my whole life. And I'm, I think you and I talked about this offline in our last conversation that starting at a really young age, I mean, it was like before my father passed away, I encountered my first suicide with my cousin who took his life. And then my father passed away shortly after that. But of course it was, you know, believed to be a heart attack, at least by me. And then we've had such loss in my family, so many different family members and grandparents and close aunts and cousins and uncles. And it's just was like this domino effect. Yeah. And a couple of years ago, one of our best childhood friends took his life. So I've, I've encountered grief in different forms my entire life, but this revelation about my dad that took place about 10 years ago was really just life altering for me. It happened at the same time that our oldest daughter was dealing with her own mental illness and some depression and began seeing a therapist, which was talk about transformative. She is the very best version of herself that I have ever known her to be in her life. And I credit her therapy and her hard work to that, but it just, well, put I appreciate, me in this, I appreciate yeah. you saying that. Sorry to interject. I, no, please. I think that's such an important thing to say in general, and also to acknowledge as a parent and witnessing that in your child. And the fact that not only is it the therapy, but the part that stands out to me and that I can really empathize with is the hard work that she's done because yeah. you don't just go to therapy, show up and it's all good. You have to really be intentional about it. And I think that speaks volumes about, you know, the, to be able to show up as your best self, you need to be willing to acknowledge the parts of yourself that you don't necessarily or want to confront. And so, mm -hmm. I mean, more power to her for being able to sit with those moments that we all know to be too uncomfortable. Yeah. And I, working I, through it. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. In fact, I, it's so funny that you're saying all that because I had the exact same conversation this afternoon with my therapist about how valuable going back into therapy after, oh God, I was in therapy when I was probably my very early twenties, because I had taken a gap year when there wasn't even gap year wasn't even a thing yeah, yeah. back then, but I took a gap year and my friends were going off to college. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I was seeing a therapist, not for any of the same reasons why I'm seeing one now, but right. I did see one. And then there was an enormous gap and I never went back. 
And, you know, of course, you focus on your children, you focus on your everyone else's well-being. And, you know, kind of when you're that mom, you're pretty much dead last yeah, in yeah. most cases. Totally. And I finally, about a year ago, got to the point where I was like, no, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm writing another book and that's specifically about my dad's suicide. And the intention is to use that as a vehicle to get other people to tell their stories, to share their experiences, because there's such incredible power in that. But I felt like I had work to do. I had a lot of work to do. It wasn't just the sexuality issue. I'm actually incredibly comfortable with that. That was an, an, an amazingly easy process for me to come out. I had incredible support. It was the right time. I And so I don't even deal with that as much in therapy. It's really just kind of sifting through everything that I went through with my dad. And like you said, the grieving all over again, because I had done that as a 10 mm. year old kid. And it's such a drastically different experience to grieve the loss of anyone, let alone a parent, right. let alone the parent who was like your person back then, because my dad was. And doing it now again as a parent, you know, I in my, you know, 50s, in my mid 50s with grown children, it's a totally different experience. Totally it's interesting. Unique. Yeah, it's interesting too, as you were saying that. I don't even know that this occurred to me the last time we spoke how much different your perspective must be learning that information now that your dad had died by suicide as an adult when you have children and thinking of it through the lens of not only sort of tending to the your child self and allowing that to sit with you but to also have that moment i am I, i'm assuming tell me if i'm wrong having the moment as a parent and recognizing like how that impact would be on your children. So yeah. if I found out this information, if I'd been in the same situation you were in and I don't have kids, I think mm -hmm. that the grieving process would have been really different because I don't think I'd be able to empathize with the thought of if I had a child and they were yeah. going through this, you know? Mm -hmm. And the irony is I had a child at that exact time and place who was going through that. So there was, you know, things were kind of happening in tandem for me at that mm -hmm. time because I was dealing with my own and I wasn't talking about that yet with anyone. Right. I mean, when I, the first several years after I found out the truth about my dad's death, I had my mom to talk about it with and my husband to talk about it with. I, my girls were still fairly young ish and I needed to get into a place of not reconciliation because you just never, you never reconcile with anything. There's no end to grief. Grief is cyclical. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, I mean, just I've been know feeling that from, it. I've been feeling yeah, this, the cycle. Yeah, I know. Recently. I know we've talked about this too. I know you had a, a huge loss and it's, I mean, it clubs you in the back of the head, like when you least expect it. And if there's one thing that I've learned through just so many different iterations of grief over so many different people in so many different ways in my life. It's like, you just got to be fluid. You got to be fluid and just let it pass through you. Totally. Don't push it away. Don't push it down. Don't try and, you know, don't try and confine it in any way. Like it is going to be what it is going to be, whether you're on board or you're not. So just, you know, and it looks and feels so different for everyone. I mean, mm -hmm. you got, you've got all your classic similarities, you know, you've got your tears, you've got your hysteria, you've got your anger, you've got, you've got all the things, but at the end of the day, like it is unique to you or it is mm -hmm. unique to me. And we just have to own that. 
Yeah, yeah, and, absolutely. And, you know, that's the only way through that I have personally found. I'm sure everybody has a different take, but that's mine. Absolutely. And I like the way that you said that too, because the circumstances are almost always very different. And the relationship that we have with people that we lose is very different. Yeah. And even just the relationship that my sister, my dad, and I all had with my mom, those are so different. So while we're grieving the same person, the loss of the same person, the moments that we have, some of them align and some of them don't and things mm -hmm. that we can and can't understand about what the other ones are going through. So yeah. I really respect and appreciate that thought around it too. And when you were saying it, you just kind of have to, the phrase you used was don't try to confine it. And I think that's so beautifully mm -hmm. put because sometimes when I felt overwhelmed, the instinct is shrink it down, try to like, not even avoid it, but don't let it be more. And mm. the other night I was having a moment as I was laying in bed and I was really missing my mom and I started to kind of freak myself out. I was laying there and I was like starting to cry and I was just said out loud, I know I need to deal with this. I really want to go to sleep right now. And I don't feel mm. like dealing with this right now. Yeah, I, I yeah. will. I promise I'll address it. But yeah, please yeah. just let me sleep, you know? And yeah. I think yeah. part of it is saying it out loud and giving yourself the space, even when you can't necessarily handle all of it in a moment to acknowledge that you're going to come back to it because you feel that it's there. Yeah. Cause it's always there. That's the thing. There's no end point. Yeah. It's not a linear thing. Right. You know, and it's funny because the book you were talking about, the grief is love book speaks to that. It speaks to that in the most beautiful ways. And it takes concepts that I think are obvious to most of us, but it mm -hmm. articulates them in such a way that you're like, Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Course it's like that. And then, you know, just by virtue of hearing somebody else point out the obvious, say the obvious, it becomes that much more reassuring. One thing I've learned how to do, and I feel like I, I've done this, I've done this with sexuality lately. I've done this with work. I've done it with, I don't, I mean, professional work. And I've also done it with the personal work that I've done, I'm doing on myself is that I've learned that I'm better when I run straight at the shit that I'm afraid of. When I run to it, toward it at it like full bore. Yeah. And that's when I've been most successful because I think that there's this thing that happens to us, this, I don't know, chemical, psychological, who knows what thing that happens. Like when we're in like fight or flight and we take the flight, we're, I don't know, we're at a disadvantage. We're retreating. We're vulnerable, not in the right kinds of ways. Right. Do you know what I mean? We're exposed. Oh, totally. We're unarmed. And yeah. when you're in like, I'm going to hit it hard. I'm not going to let it take me down. Or maybe I am going to let it take me down, but I'm going to, I'm going to intentionally. Yeah. But like on my terms. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Exactly. So it served me pretty well so far. And I think the things that I run the hardest toward have been the things that I've found the most success with, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's super relevant to where I'm at in my life as well. And actually the conversation I was having with my wife, Nicole, we were talking about avoiding things that we don't want to do, basic things, little stupid life things that you have to do yeah. because you're an adult. <laughs> and, and that you're like, I just don't want to have to keep doing these things, you know, but the inclination is to avoid it. And then you just kind of make that problem worse. And so because mm -hmm. you're retreating from it and you're not confronting it, you now are sitting with this anxiety for an indefinite amount of time about yeah. like, what's the result going to be? And it's like, figure out what the result's going to be as soon as you possibly can, provided you're prepared for whatever that might be. Right. And as prepared as you can be, I should say. But, you know, as you were saying that, it really made me think about 
your involvement with the Trevor Project. And Mm -hmm. so finding out this information about your father's death and then ultimately becoming a crisis counselor for Trevor Project and this new role that you've just shared with me. How did you go from that moment where you realized you were going to be kind of regrieving the loss of your father into this journey of helping people through those really difficult moments in their life where they're essentially, you're trying to help them realize why their life is important? Mm. You know, that's a big, beautiful question. And I could probably talk for four days about that. I could stretch that answer out for sure. We can do another episode. Um, Yeah, we might need (laughs) 10 to 12. So, I mean, it wasn't an instantaneous thing. Let's put it this way. I give you like a tiny two seconds of backstory. I've always been an empath. I've always been a highly, highly sensitive person. It's how I function in the world. It's who I am wherever I show up in whatever community I'm attached to, whether it's, you know, work community or social community, family, and anywhere, I will always want to be the one to hold space and have always found a lot of gratitude for people who have allowed me to do that. So that being said, I've always known that that was a part of me. And there were all these little, I was peeling away layers, you know, peeling away the sexuality layer, peeling away the mental health layer. And there were there were too many signs pointing me in the direction of this terrible thing happened to you and to your mom and to my family. You know, my, my dad took his life and it just blew everything up. Everything went nuclear overnight and I was 10. So I wasn't thinking about, you know, doing anything like I'm doing now. I mean, I was a kid, but as I got older, as I learned the truth about his death And as my daughter went through her own mental health struggles and challenges and have come out the other side, it's made me recognize that my purpose, I believe my purpose is to take the experiences that I've had, the knowledge that I've acquired, the skills that I've learned, and to put them in a place where those things will benefit other people. I want to pay it all forward. I want to pay every bit of it forward. I want to be of service. It's taken me a long time to come to the, and it's getting me actually kind of a little emotional, which is totally catching me off guard, but it, I just want to be of service and I want to be of service in this space because it is so insanely near and dear to me. And Trevor Project, because, you know, you mentioned Trevor Project, and for those who may not know what Trevor Project is, it's the it's been around for 25 years. We just celebrated our 25th year in existence, and it is the world's largest crisis support line for LGBTQ youth in crisis ages 13 to 24. So there's a, a chat feature. You can reach out on text. And there's obviously like the old fashioned, pick up the phone and call a lifeline. And I've become a lifeline counselor. Last summer, I started on the phone lines. I there's a You have to be schooled in the ways of Trevor Project. It's very intense. It's an incredible experience. It took about four months. And then as of last summer, I went on the lifelines. And the more time I spent on the lifelines, the more I realized how desperately people just need someone to hold space. I'm not a clinician. I'm not trained as a clinician. I'm trained to validate, to to hold space, to provide resources, to maybe de-escalate in certain situations, to maybe intervene or have authorities intervene if that 
might be the case. Trevor Project came on my radar kind of unexpectedly. Once I came out and started paying so much more attention to, you know, what was out there in the LGBTQ community, everywhere I turned, Trevor Project was everywhere. They were blowing up. And it was just the most beautiful intersection of who I am, who my child is. I have a child who's queer and they're providing life-saving care for people who are in crisis. And it was like a no-brainer after that. So that's how, I mean, that's the super long version of kind of how I landed there. I love the way that you explained it too, because it led me down a path of a bunch of other questions that I have. Yeah, fire (laughs) away, fire away. (laughs) So, you know, I, I think part of what is so important about your story is the way that you came out was by was in the really kind of a shared moment where your daughter was coming out Mm -hmm. to you. And I think that one of the things that I find so challenging as somebody who's in the queer community, I came out, gosh, almost 20 years ago now. It's weird. Um, That that makes me feel super old because I'm like, (laughs) it can't possibly be that long ago. It is, you know, but it wasn't, it's hard because I think that we've reached a place in society where there is a lot more acceptance, but I think the scrutiny feels a lot bigger because people have more of a platform now too. And so the thing that I'm, I'd really love to talk about what I'm trying to get to is, you know, when you hear from people how like their parents don't handle coming out well, you know, I think 20 years ago, 50 years ago, that's, sort of an expected thing where it might, Mm. it may or may not land 20 years ago, may or may not land 50 years ago, probably not having that conversation for a lot of people. Yeah. But you know, now to, for your daughter to be able to a feel like she trusts you, she feels safe with you. She wants to express Mm. this to you. And then to be able to really share that moment of your own acknowledgement of your identity, I think really speaks volumes, first of all, about you as a person and that you created that environment as a parent for your child. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was a team effort. <laughs> um, I do have a pretty amazing husband. So that's um, fair. We share all the same values. So Credit to your husband as well. Yeah. And I think that the thing that really stands out to me when I consider what you're doing at Trevor Project is how many people are calling in or contacting the organization because they don't have that type of support system. They're feeling alone or lost or unseen or unheard. The question that comes from all of that is, what do you see as an opportunity for us as a society to be able to collectively offer more support or understanding about the LGBTQ community for the people who are, for lack of a better term, opposed or ignorant, don't Mm. understand. Because I know there are people that will never try to understand, right? Like they're their own category of humans. But there are people who are just kind of ignorant because they don't know any better, not because Mm -hmm. they're hateful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I think that in my case, I mean, I can't say that my daughter or either one of us for that matter, has ever really encountered any real negativity. And that's pretty remarkable. I mean, we live in Boston, you know, so very, you know, we're in Massachusetts, very super liberal. She went to a liberal college. You know, as you said, the world has, is definitely tracking in the right direction in terms of acceptance on most days. And I think we just approach it 
with kindness, with love, with incredible amounts of patience and tolerance. And we just keep talking. We just keep talking. And here's the thing. It's like, it would be very easy for anybody to take someone else's hate super personally. How can you not take hate personally, right? When it's Mm -hmm. directed at you or your community. But I feel like we all owe each other the benefit of the doubt that there's something underneath that. There's something driving someone's lack of understanding. And like you said, it could just be nothing more than just lack of education or, you know, religious beliefs or values, upbringing, a million different reasons why someone believes what they believe. And I just think that if we maintain a sense of openness and we we don't waver in our own vulnerability because when we're vulnerable it promotes vulnerability i think that's been my own experience that's really valuable for people to hear too because when you're in a community that can consistently be ostracized for any number of reasons that people want to try to give I find for myself, there's a balance of kind of, I don't even want to say rage because it's not like a visceral thing. It's more like just sheer frustration. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. Try harder then. <laughs> right. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And the sad reality is that not everybody has the capacity to try harder, which is why it's up to those of us who kind of know the truth. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, we know the truth. Everybody's, you know, everybody's valuable. Everybody's worthy. Everybody's deserving of love. You know, e- you know, everybody deserves a second chance. All the, we, That's the truth that I live by. And, you know, as long as we keep showing up with that in mind and putting that out into the world, that's, you know, we just have to be relentless. That's what we have to do all the time in spite of, you know, the naysayers or the hate relentless good intentions right like yeah, really yeah, tr- yeah really trying to if people don't understand trying to help them understand without demeaning them or mm-hmm. creating tension and it's not to say don't be firm in what you believe or how you say something even but mm-hmm. in my own experience it's just you're not going to really get anywhere if you come in defensive because people who are already kind of challenged by your existence mm-hmm. are going to feel even more protective of their own selves and their identities as a result of the way that you might be addressing them. And I feel like it's hard when you're faced with confrontation when you need to be educated because then it also kind of makes you feel, and I'm speaking for myself, but I think it's sort of like a general human quality is don't act like I don't know what I'm talking about or don't. Yeah, try- right. Treat me like don't invalidate me. Exactly. Exactly. So the way that you're coming at that and saying with kindness and being really intentional and thoughtful about the way we approach those things is super important. I mean, representation overall, the fact that you came out later in life, that you are speaking to it so openly without hesitation, that you even said, it was a pretty straightforward experience for you. Like people know yeah. this is it. That's great. Yeah. I mean, like yep. solid. I feel like that's 10 out of 10. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I was very, very, very straightforward about it. And I, I don't want anyone who's listening to think that on the same day that 
our daughter came out, I like hijacked the conversation. It was a couple of years later when she came out to us, which by the way, it's worth saying because I, as far as, as far as like top most cherished parenting moments go, that was probably my proudest moment as a parent to know that my child felt comfortable enough, safe enough, secure enough, loved enough, validated enough to come to us and tell us this truth about herself. I like started crying because I cry anyway at everything, but I started crying and she's what are you doing? And I'm like, no, I'm just so happy that you like, this is my best moment that you I can't believe you share that with us. I'm sorry. This is what a gift this is. And so that's how that went down. And it wasn't until it was probably maybe a year or two later that she. Okay, I apologize I, that I missed you. Yeah. That. Oh, no, I may not have. I probably didn't clarify the timeline of it, but we were having this really in-depth conversation, which, of course, she was like sponging up everything having to do with the queer community and educating me. And we were just like out for breakfast one day and she was trying to explain to me the kind of the nuances between pansexuality and bisexuality, because the vernacular didn't exist when I was her age. It was gay, straight, bi. It didn't exist when I was her age either. Yeah, right, right. So the language didn't exist. So you couldn't articulate it. You didn't know. And I was like, well, but I definitely, you know, I like everyone. I love everyone. Like I could be attracted to that. And it wasn't until she explained it to me and I was like, oh my God, Riley, I think I'm pansexual. And she was like, yeah, mom. Yeah, for you, mom. I love you, mom. You know, and so that's just how that whole thing went down. And then when I actually came out, I was like, yep, I've had this thing in that little teeny tiny square pocket in your jeans that no one knows the purpose of. I've had it in there my whole life. And I'm just taking it out and letting the sun hit it. That's all. That's amazing. And I also feel as an outsider hearing that experience for the both of you and your daughter's response to you acknowledging your pansexuality, that is also a really cherishable parent moment to have that type of dynamic and the openness and the open-mindedness of the conversation. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I really admire about the way that you approach life and the conversations that we've had is you're very direct, but in such like a loving way, like a very, yeah, you, you, your empathy emanates. And I think that it's something that- the sweetest thing. Thank you. Yeah, of course. I mean, when you interact with people, I think this is something that can be really challenging for a lot of people is really showing up fully and being able to speak to people about your own lived experiences without sort of at least an outward, I can say, because I'm not you, but like really not projecting any sort of insecurity around like that sense of yourself and that, that part of you that what didn't really arrive to the public until later in your life. But Mm. even now, I think I still have insecurities around my identity sometimes. And it's not part of it, I think is learned and it's something that I need to unlearn. And like you said, with your daughter explaining to you the variations of labels and identities that people speak to today and find themselves exploring when, before I met my wife, she'd only come out a couple of years prior and she said to me, she's, I mean, for a while, I thought I might be asexual. I mm-hmm. thought maybe I'd be, pan, I was pansexual. I yeah. was going through demisexual. I'm like, I don't know what any of these things are. <laughs> it's hard. There's so much out there now. And every day something evolves and every day there's another addition or classification or identity. And it's tough. 
Yeah, it's and it's tough. like be who you are and explain as you feel is necessary. But it's also something where when we started this conversation, I was saying, you know, I feel like it's important to talk about representation. And I think especially because these types of identities and labels and conversations weren't really happening when you were growing up. They weren't really happening when I was growing up and it wasn't present on television. It wasn't like Mm -hmm. everything was sort of a caricature of what it actually is. And I think we're even still a little bit in that state where I'm like, there's, there's a much smaller gap between sort of mainstream content and queer content. Sometimes it intersects, but I do think that there's still sort of a notable difference in some of it. And it's to be able to really give people perspective on things. We need them to see what a day in the life of somebody mm-hmm. who's queer looks like of somebody yeah. who's a different race looks like of somebody, different gender. It doesn't even matter what the classification, what the part of your identity is. It's just that if we don't show people and you're not subject to those things in your everyday life, then how will you ever possibly learn about it? And we're lucky that the internet exists because people can Google things, but there's also a flood of misinformation out in the world. So it's hard. It's it's definitely a double-edged sword in that way because, you know, it's like most most of my daughter's generation gets their news from TikTok, you know, it's so things are very skewed and it's sometimes intimidating to, you know, to find the accurate information, you know, but in terms of like representation as a whole, that was my motivation. What did I have to gain or lose by, I probably had, I guess, a lot more to lose by coming out and I mean, I was, I'm happily married. We're celebrating our 30th wedding anniversary in two weeks. And, you know, we've been together for 37 years, you know, since we were 17 and, you know, Dave's my person and he always has been. I just acknowledged the fact that I have the capacity to, you know, be attracted to or love or interested in someone if they're trans or someone, if they're, you know, a woman or a man or whomever. and you know, I wanted to acknowledge that because I'm sitting here from the cheap seats watching the queer community my whole life, like struggle and, you know, just their like uphill battle for, you know, for every, you know, for everybody who's understanding and allying with them, you know, it's, you know, struggling for every vote kind of thing, you know what I mean? And acknowledgement and validation And it's what can I do as a human being? What capacity do I have as a human being to not necessarily affect change, but, you know, to add a little bit of, you know, mortar to the wall to strengthen it. And I was like, you know, because it wasn't like I was coming out so that I could make some big, you know, announcement to my family and friends. I'm done with Dave. I'm moving on to someone else. It wasn't like that. Yeah purely and strictly an acknowledgement of who I was and how can I raise kids? How can I raise two humans if I'm afraid or intimidated or in any way uneasy about sharing exactly who I am? Like that makes me a fraud in my opinion. That's to me. And I'm only saying this is my own opinion of myself. I just took a look at it and was like from, you know, kind of like the drone level, the higher level. And was like, I can't do that. 
Yeah, and good conscience, like feeling like if you're going to promote that type of authenticity for your children, then you should be living by that as well. A hundred percent. And it was in that moment, that conversation that I had with her, like I always knew that there was, you know, there was something that that I had, you know, more than just an opposite sex attraction. But again, back to the whole, there wasn't language to identify these things. So I really couldn't, I couldn't really unearth it anymore. And then all of a sudden the language was there. And the minute I understood what it was, I was like, yep, that's me. Here I am. And the next move was to say, was to acknowledge it to my, you know, my, my kids and to Dave and everyone was just like, thanks. Love you. What are we having for dinner? You know? And then, you know, same thing with my family and, you know, my mom was amazing in-laws, everyone. And then here we are. That's amazing. And what a beautiful way to be able to really come into all of who you are and have that type of support and understanding, you know, part of what you acknowledge in that statement too, is we've sort of architected these expectations around coming out as part of the mm-hmm. queer community where it's like, it's something like it's a thing, <laughs> right, right. It's a thing. And we want to be the same, but our thing is different. Yeah, 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 totally. Our news is different. Well, and you have to constantly come out to people in certain ways. It's like there's, it's almost as if there's an obligation to come out if somebody doesn't inherently know. I mean, I definitely look like a lesbian from 100 yards away at this point, but I didn't always. And so there was much more, I think a sense that I needed to say it to, to kind of enforce that was the case for certain people. And at the same time, it's, I don't want to have to do that. I don't think that anybody should have to explain themselves. And Mm -hmm. I think diversity and not in the clinical sense of like HR, making sure they're compliant diversity, but like actual diverse human beings with different lived experiences, different Mm -hmm. cultural backgrounds, different inherited biases. Like we need to expose ourselves to those things so that we can gain a greater sense of the world and that we yeah. can have more empathy. What is your opinion, I guess, especially because you've written parenting books yeah. on how to even like broach that subject? Because we were on a TikTok live with this one guy saying that, you know, he's pretty sure that he knows that his daughter's gay, but he doesn't mm-hmm. want to bring it up to her, but she hasn't brought it up to him. But are you asking yourself why she hasn't felt comfortable to bring it up to you? You know? Yeah. So I sorry, yeah. I know that was like a little circular. No, 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 no. I, no, I love where this is going. You know, it's so situational. I mean, there are so many different factors. I get asked, I wouldn't say this exact question. I like how you asked it, but I get asked versions of this question from time to time. And I always kind of default back to the same answer because it's really the only, it's the only answer I believe to be true for me and for our little family unit. And it's how we've always handled things. We had no idea that Riley was queer. None whatsoever was like boy crazy her whole life. And she didn't even like fully understand or acknowledge until she was like a junior, senior in high school and then didn't come out until she was in college. But so I think that it starts with as parents, us modeling tolerance and acceptance and openness with everybody in the world around us, with conversations around the dinner table, with, you know, you hear so many people being so passive aggressive and these casual statements that people make that are racist. I know we don't use the term microaggressions anymore, but it's like that. They're derogatory. Exactly. They're insulting, but they're passive aggressive. And, you know, and our kids 
pick up on that. And they also pick up on our ability to be open and receptive and accepting and inclusive and diverse. And, you know, that's what we have to lead with first. I mean, you're certainly not going to sit down and have a what's your sexuality conversation with your four-year-old, right? right. you know, but by the same token, your four-year-old could daughter could come to you and say, I feel like I'm a boy. Well, I was going to say, but if they come to you, be ready for that conversation. Right. And then, you know, I mean, I have a lot of friends whose children have transitioned and they're amazing families and amazing parents with incredible depth of heart and soul and, you know, the ability to navigate these things in ways that I don't even know how I would navigate if I were in that situation. But I mean... All I can say is this it's it goes back to the same thing. It's like lead with love and with openness and you know try to ask you know kind of semi probing questions I guess if you've got like a teen or a tween or a high school student you know be curious. Ask, yeah, it's just it's all about let them do the talking. This is the one thing and I think it serves me on like the entire scope of parenthood. Shut the fuck up and listen to your child. I can say that because your podcast is called Who the Fuck. So I can say the I can say the F bomb anytime I want. That's the I would lead with that though. And I would just shut up and let my kid talk. Like, how does that make you feel? What's going on? What do you need from me? How often do you ask a kid? What do you need from me? We're always talking at our kids. We're always the ones. You know, it's like that expectation. You're the parent. So you've got to be like controlling, you know, the communication and the dialogue and the narrative. And no, it's bullshit. We should be sitting around listening to each other and especially our young kids so that they know that we're curious. They know that we want to know. And then just like lead with love. Like, if you know, if you've got a child who is maybe telling you about their friend who just came out and they're non-binary or someone's transitioning or whatever the case may be, how you react to that is going to dictate how much or how little your kid's going to tell you going forward in their life. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I, I don't know if that was like a concrete answer to your question, but I think that it all boils down to, you know, doing a lot more listening and a lot more asking questions and just modeling. It's like, we got to model the shit out of everything. And I say that not like in a flippant kind of way. I'm saying it in like a, we need to do this, Nikki. That's what we need yeah. to do as parents, as, you know, forget parenthood. Even. As humans. As humans. Thank you. Yes. Because, you know, at the end of the day, when we all start having consideration for what we're putting out into the world and the impact that has on the world around us, that's when we're going to see seismic change. You know what I mean? In the world. I I could not agree with you more, Lisa. And, you know, the way that you said that to all of it, really, I mean, just a hundred percent agreement on all of it, including the shut the fuck up part, because that's the the biggest part. Because the thing that aggravates me, and I think it pertains to any of us, to your point, in any scenario, we need to be better listeners. And I've learned Mm -hmm. this myself. I'm clearly a talker. So that was learned behavior for me to actually dial it back and be more intentional about listening. But when I came out to my parents, and this was the hardest thing for me with them, because I grew up, we had a family friend, the woman was like a second mom to me. And she's a lesbian. And I remember finding out about that later, like when I was maybe in my teens or something. And 
I feel, you know, I never felt like my parents had any judgment about it, right? It just, it, I, my mom lived in Manhattan for a good portion of her adult life. So she had like plenty of gay friends. It wasn't a thing that I ever really thought about. But when I mm-hmm. came out, their response was about them. And it aggravated. Meaning the optics? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Uh. It was, but it was like, it was interesting because I think part of it was, you know, it's, so one of the last conversations I had with my mom in person right before she passed away was I'd been in a position where I was living at my sister's house for a couple of months because I had left this abusive relationship. And mm-hmm. my parents ended up coming down the one night or day to talk to me. And I was sitting there kind of explaining where I was at and what was going on and really giving them a lot of details that they didn't have before. And my mom said mm-hmm. to me, I just don't understand why you couldn't tell us this sooner. And after a lot of therapy, Mm -hmm. I, in that moment, finally was able to say, and I'm so glad I was able to say this to her before she passed away. I didn't feel like I could tell you because I kept thinking about like how you guys responded when I came out to you. It was, it was a feeling of there's going to be some sort of judgment or your response isn't going to be to, you know, kind of offer that support. And it's not that my parents aren't supportive people. They've been supportive my whole life. But the moment that I tied it all back to was really a moment when I needed them to not make it about them. And they didn't. And it was like, so a lot of my queer experience is coming out to my parents was sort of a don't ask, don't tell when I was dating people. I got to Mm. a point where I ended up writing a letter, leaving it in the door. They got pissed that I left a letter in the door and didn't talk to them about it. But I was like, we get into knockdown, drag out fights every time I, not physically, but verbally. Yeah, yeah. Every time I try to talk to you about this, because you think like that your opinion on my sexuality is relevant, you know? And it's, and I don't think I phrased it that way, but it's sort of the idea of you're entitled to think whatever you think, but don't make my coming out to you, which is a very hard thing to do to get, to a place where I was ready to even do that and then have your immediate response not be like support or questions that are seeking to understand. It was, mm-hmm. well, you can't just tell people like when you go to work somewhere. And I was like, do you think I introduce myself? Very <laughs> Hi, yeah. I'm gay. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right, what I said. Right. Come on. That's not even a thing. Yeah. And so it was really tense for about a year afterwards. Where, and it was kind of touch and go for a little while after that. But you know, I think it just speaks volumes about how they really didn't understand the impact that had on me in that moment. It was 15 years later that I finally said something about it. And why I said it was because I was in a bad situation that I didn't want to tell them about because I didn't know how they'd react. And it's like, my parents raised me with a lot of love. I felt very loved. I felt supported in so many ways. But when it came to those really deeply personal things, it was like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to go there. And I think, you know, if they had just allowed me to share and been empathetic to that instead Mm -hmm. of overly concerned with their own reaction, it would have been a very different experience for most of my adult life. Yeah. First of all, I'm really sorry that you had to have that experience because as a parent who has had a child come out to me, I understand very deeply how powerful that moment is, how defining that moment is, not only for the person who's coming out, but for the person who's receiving that gift of that person's true self. So, you know, I'm sorry that you had that 
experience. I want to hug you right now. I appreciate um, that. You know what I think it is? And I'm, I don't want in any way for this to sound like any kind of a justification because it is 1000% not a justification. I, speaking as a parent who has raised two kids now and they're grown up women, I definitely understand how parents we're self-centered in a lot of ways. We're self, we can be self-absorbed in a lot of ways. Our kids are a reflection of us. It's like, this is like a silly example, but it's like, I have parent friends who were like, you know, all American athletes, D1 athlete, whatever, in such and such a sport. And they were out of their freaking minds that their child did not choose their sport to play in high school or their college to go to for college or what, whatever it was, or if their child didn't win MVP, it was a reflection of their parenting or, and you can superimpose any situation into this little, you know, metric that you want. But that's what I'm getting at is that we take our kids' activities, attitudes, personalities, traits, failures, successes, you name it, we internalize all that because they came from us and we raised them. And it's this perverted state of mind for a lot of parents. And it just becomes about them. I so appreciate that perspective, Lisa, because you're spot on. And I think the acknowledgement that this can happen in such a variety of ways is mm -hmm. so important. And, you know, it actually reminded me of something, which if I'm going to be completely honest, if my mom were still alive, I wouldn't be saying this, but she's not here. So yeah. I'm going to say it. <laughs> so when I came out to them, it was, I think it was like the day before, two days before I was going back to college from Christmas break. And so I dropped the grenade and then walked away. <laughs> So, in and run. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And so they ended up coming up maybe like a week later or something because they were like, we don't feel like we talked to you about this. We feel like we had, they were uncomfortable with how we left it. So in a okay. way, I appreciated that. Yeah. Um, okay. My mom wanted to talk to me separately of my dad. And I remember sitting in a parking lot near my college with her in the car. And my dad was probably in a store or whatever somewhere. And she had made a comment that we never, ever addressed after this that, me coming out made her realize that she had to s tell my dad things about her own life, something not verbatim, but something along those lines. And I'm like, so is this your indirect way of telling me that you've had queer experiences or that you're queer in some way, but you're not saying it like, and we never talked about it. It was this very limited information. This is all I'm giving you, but I'm telling you that part of the reason I'm reacting this way is because I'm uncomfortable with what it's forcing me to acknowledge about myself. That's interesting. That's actually kind of a brave thing to say in a lot of ways. Yeah. To, I mean, I feel for you that it never was elaborated on. Yeah. It's funny it's because a, I don't think about it a lot because it was I think in that way, I was like, well, so now you're, are you blaming me for you having to deal with your own shit? Because that's not fair either, you know? <laughs> it isn't. It isn't at all. But, you know, that's the bizarreness of parenthood in some ways. We've all been in those situations. And any parent who's going to sit here and look you in the eye and say that they've never felt a certain way because their kid did or didn't do something is full of shit because yeah. we've all been there in some way. And you know, I think what your mom said to you is probably the case with so many parents. 
who have those kinds of reactions because it just, you know, it's not like a making it all about them thing, but it's forcing them to look at parts of themselves that they buried that they buried. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I appreciate this conversation so much for helping me resurface that for myself too, because it mm. was so long ago. And it is one of those things where, I mean, maybe with where I'm at now, I would have eventually gotten to a place and been like, so let's talk about it. Because I think I've, it's interesting because since losing my mom, I also feel like I have a little bit more of a no bullshit policy. So mm. she's like, I planned it that way. I wasn't going to deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, right. knows we were too much alike, but I do think with my dad, there are these moments sometimes. And I was even saying this to my wife yesterday. There have been moments where I'm like, just because I'm your child doesn't mean I'm still a child. So I am going to push back on you. And I am going to say the things that I feel and you might not yeah. like it. And that's your responsibility. And my dad mm-hmm. and I had gotten into this. I don't even know what kind of stupid argument we were getting into. And he was getting real frustrated. And I said, first of all, you're acting extremely immature. And I said, and second of all, you're trying to blame me for something when you control your response. So we're not going to do this. And it's if I had that awareness of my own emotional capacity and ability to set boundaries when I was younger, Mm -hmm. these could have been many different conversations. So I think it's twofold in that, you know, I wasn't raised to speak about certain things, but it also, again... I was born in the 80s, grew up in the 90s, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Like we weren't talking about therapy the way that we do now. We weren't, no. the conversation about mental health wasn't front and center like it is now. And mm-hmm. so I think part of it is also adapting into the world that we're in now for my dad, who's in his 60s, for me, who I'm in my late 30s. And like really being, as you said earlier in the conversation, the best thing that we can do is be vulnerable and make sure that people understand that we're creating a safe space for them to be vulnerable as well by showing up fully and giving that opportunity to other people. And I really appreciate how well you can speak to that, Lisa. It's so informative and so powerful, I think, to hear your lived experience and the way that you approach your relationship with your kids and your own relational dynamic with yourself to be able to be in a place where you have that emotional awareness, that evolution to to show up and be able to speak that to other people in a way that is palatable too. Because I think a lot of times the hard part is learning new things emotionally, psychologically about ourselves. It mm-hmm. is, it's not light, you know? It's No, it's, it's not. not. But that's the point. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole point. We're not born with all this knowledge. You weren't born with the skills and the capacity and the experience to navigate those kinds of conversations with your mom or with your dad. Like we've, we are, if there's one word to describe any of us at any point, regardless of gender or age or sexuality or any, anything that would classify us as human beings, we are fluid. We're fluid and we're supposed to be fluid. You know, I feel like I'm getting acquainted now with the real version of myself more so than I ever have because I have been prioritizing myself. I just had this conversation like six hours ago in therapy and said that I, for the first time in my life over like the last like nine months to a year, starting with giving myself the gift of going back to therapy I've, I'm getting acquainted with myself because I'm paying attention to myself yeah. because so often I never say no. I almost never 
say no. And in a lot of ways, it served me really well because I love to take on new opportunities and make new connections and go in different directions and explore. But at the same time, too, when I don't say no, when I say yes to someone else, I'm inevitably saying no to myself. You know what I mean? When I'm saying yes to you, I'm saying no to myself in that way. And I'm limiting myself. And I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not being really super discriminating about what I say yes to, where I spend my time, who I spend my time with. And it's served me really well lately. And and I feel like I'm a much truer version of myself now than I ever have been. Oh, that's a, such a beautiful sentiment. I think it's such a great way to round out the episode. I, You and I have already established we could talk for hours on end. So, so we'll <laughs> we do could. listeners a favor and attempt to cut ourselves off. But I did just want to ask one more question. As somebody who has gone through really a big, as you said, transformation in the past few years, what do you feel is important for somebody who's maybe at that precipice now to make sure that they understand or What's the best way for them to give themselves grace as they're going through that evolution? Because as we've said, it's not always easy. It's got its highs and lows. So what advice would you give to somebody who's starting that journey? I would say I would absolutely lead with giving yourself grace. I say that a lot. So I really love and appreciate that you said it yourself. I would say allow yourself to just be exactly where you are right here and now without any judgment. I have the tendency to beat myself up when I'm not like creating something, writing a book, creating content, busy, busy, busy. I'm one of those people. I'm always a seeker. I'm out, I'm out there trying to make things happen and build community and do all the things. And, you know, when I have those moments of being idle, they feel weird to me. They feel unsettling. They feel like well, you should be doing something. Like if God forbid, I would lay down on the couch with my dog and try to close my eyes. I'm thinking about the 6,000 other things that I either should be doing or could be doing, you know, and it's only recently that I've stopped doing that. And I'm like, no, you know what? You need to learn how to be quiet. You need to learn how to be slow. You need to learn how to be intentional. You need to lean into your meditation practice or whatever practice, you know, I mean, that's, that happens to be mine, but I've been spending an awful lot more time alone lately than I ever have. I mean, obviously I have my husband's here, my kids are here, but I mean, I've allowed myself to really kind of pull back and go in, not in a way of being, you know, being a recluse, but in a way of just being introspective and really taking stock of where I am. And I'm just slowing it all down and enjoying it. And I would say that to anyone who was kind of like feeling antsy or itchy or on the edge of some big discovery, let it be, sit in it, sit with it, think about it, talk about it, find people you trust, find a safe space And start articulating it. If you're not ready to do that, get a journal, do it there, write it down. And bit by bit, that kind of permeates from one space to the next. And then before you know it, you're, you know, you're maybe kind of owning those pieces that you weren't really ready to share. And then once you do that, it's, I'll tell you, like, honestly, if there's one word that I would want to live by, Uh, It's really just the authenticity because it has been life-changing for me. Just vulnerability and authenticity 
will take you further than you could ever imagine you could go without it. Oh my gosh. Thank you for saying all of that. I think you spoke such power to those words. And this also explains just even more than we already knew why we clicked so instantaneously, because those are probably the two words I would use as well. And, you know, a lot of that came from me spending time in my life, not really showing up authentically because I didn't feel safe to do that in my own body, in my own life. And so Mm -hmm. I completely understand that and it resonates and I am certain it will resonate with people who are listening because there's really something to be said for grabbing onto the parts of you that you need to sit with and letting yourself either be uncomfortable or be exploratory with them. And much like you, I've leaned a lot into meditating. And years ago, I would have said, I hated when people told me to give myself grace. I was like, what Mm -hmm. the fuck? What am I supposed to do with that? And then also I was like meditating. Okay. What's that going to do? And you know what? When I have moments in my workday, when I'm feeling stressed, And I'm like, I can't focus on anything. My ADHD is out of control. Like, what am I going to do? I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go meditate for 15 to 30 minutes. And I more often than not end up like, okay, cool. Like I can regroup now because Mm -hmm. I listened, right? Like you said, like you got to listen to what your body is telling you. And a lot of times we let our minds kind of take over and convince us that there's other priorities. But you know what? I think as you said so perfectly, our priority has to be us. And yeah. Oh yeah. When that happens, then we're the best version of ourselves for everybody else as well. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, we are our own worst enemy if we allow ourselves to be, but it's when we arrive at a place of recognizing that we can't control anything around us except ourselves. We can't, I can't control what you may give to me or someone else the world may give to me, but I can damn well control how I act and react to that and what I put back out in the world. So that is where the focus should be. It shouldn't be on trying to manipulate anything outside of yourself. It should just be showing up authentically, being open and honest and managing your own self and your own reactions and making sure you stay true to that. Oh my gosh. What a conversation. I, I, there's no words, which is weird for me. (laughs) Well, this is definitely, this is definitely without a doubt going down in my like top, top podcast interviews of all time. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. This has just been such a delight. I can't wait for the next time, but I know, I know. In the meantime, would you tell listeners where they can learn more about what you're doing and if they want to follow you anywhere on social where that might be? Yeah, sure. I mean, the best place to to find me is just my website, just lisasugarman.com. You know, all the links to all my socials are there, but I'm the Lisa Sugarman on Facebook. I'm Lisa underscore Sugarman on Instagram. And, you know, you can just Google me. It's kind of fun to see what comes up when you do that. But oh yeah, I'm always out there. I love to make connections, you know, whatever resources that I have available that, that might be beneficial to somebody else. I'm always happy to hand those over. Amazing. Thanks so much, Lisa. Thanks for this episode of Who the Fuck, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to Who the Fuck. And if you like what you hear, share the show with your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else you think needs a healthy dose of introspection and raw authenticity. Feel free to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It's always appreciated. And you can also visit whothefck.com to check out more content. Plus, you can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at who the fck underscore pod to keep up to date with what's new in my world and for exclusive bonus content catch you on the flip side
Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An Electric Cast production. See you there.